further from temptation and sin, uh, which so affects us. So let's notice David's vision of God here in Psalm 139. First of all, you can look at the first six verses, verses 1 through 6, and if you'd like to write in your Bible, I would suggest that next to those six verses, you write the words, God sees. God sees. He sees everything about you. He knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing you do, no place you go, no sacrifice you make, no injustice you might endure, no problem you face. There is nothing hidden from our all-seeing and all-knowing God. God sees. He sees your heart. Verse number one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Another psalm, by another psalmist, one of the sons of Korah, said, said something similar. Psalm 44, verse 21, Would not God search this out, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Jeremiah the prophet wrote, But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. God knows what you did this morning after you arose from sleep. He knows what you thought as you prepared for church this morning. He knows your plans and your schemes for the rest of the day. He sees you, all of you, even the parts that nobody else can see. He, sees, he even sees the parts of you that you yourself cannot see. He sees and he knows. He sees your every action, your every motive. Verse number two, you know my sitting down and my rising up. David used a literary device there. It's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism. Definition of that is this. A mirrorism is a rhetorical device in which a combination of two contrasting parts of the whole refer to the whole. You got that? I know I've just glazed everybody's eyes over. But now think about what that means. Here's an example of what that means. If you wanted to say, I searched everywhere, uh, a, a, a way to say that using a mirrorism would be to say, I searched high and low. And we say that kind of thing all the time because those two opposite contrasting extremes give us the, give us the uh, understanding that we've done everything we could possibly do. We searched everywhere we could possibly search. And David here described two opposite actions, sitting down and rising up to drive home. What the fact that God sees all of our actions. You can't sit down without God seeing and knowing it. You can't stand up without Him seeing and knowing it. He sees your every action in between. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant he sees. He even sees your thoughts. Second part of verse number two. You understand my thought. Afar off. Now normally we see that phrase afar off and we think that refers to distance. Maybe it does. You can see your thoughts from where he is in heaven. Which I don't know. I don't know how far away that is. My guess is it's infinitely far away. It may, it may indeed refer to distance, but I think it just as accurately refers to time. Afar off with respect to time, because it's certainly true God sees your thoughts from all ways away, both with respect to time and distance. From eternity past, God saw your thoughts. He knew what you would be thinking right now. He knew that some of you would be sitting there right now and saying, This preacher's bored me to death. He knew some of you would be thinking. Those kinds of things. He sees, he knows your thoughts. He sees and he knows your day-to-day -day activities. Verse number three, you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates that verse. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted. 
allowed to sit, to winnow. You know what winnow means? He surrounds your your uh, your day's activities. He scrutinizes them. He sits them. He winnows them. We saw an example of winnowing when we went to uh, Israel. I think it was the very last time we went. We went to Nazareth, and there in Nazareth they have a a little area set up now, which is a recreation of what Nazareth would have looked like in Jesus' day. So there's people wandering around there doing things that they would have been doing. And there was someone there who was winnowing grain. And what they were doing is they had a big flat basket and they would put grain in there and then they put it up in the air. And as they put it up in the air, the wind would catch it and blow away the chaff and the dust and the wind or the grain would fall back down. That's winnowing. And this verse literally says that God sees, he scrutinizes, he winnows your every activity. And again, we have the presence of those two opposites are lying down uh, in, in our path. It's used to denote all of what we do, everything we do, the entire scope of daily activity. One man said, God takes notice of every step we take, every right step and every bicep. He knows what rule we walk by, what end we walk toward, what company we walk. Not only does God see and know your heart, your every action and motive, your thoughts, and the entire scope of your day-to-day activities, He sees and knows your words. That's verse number four. Every word you say. Verse four, there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all again. He knows your words even before you do. Even before you say it. Next time you contemplate speaking, you might want to remember that. That He knows exactly what you were going to say. He already heard it. He already knows it. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you. What does this vision of God's omniscience, and that's what this is a vision of right here, this part. Omniscience is just a big word that means God sees and knows everything. What does that do for you? How does it make you feel? David, when he was thinking about this, realized God's omniscience had him completely hedged in. That's verses 5 through 6. He was surrounded by it. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't say anything. He couldn't do anything or even think anything that God did not, does not see and know. He saw that there was no way to escape God's incredible omniscience. You know, Adam first thought after he had sinned. You remember Genesis chapter 3 describes Adam and Eve uh, taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating it when God had said not to. This is the fall of man, the introduction of sin into the world. And don't you think it's interesting that Adam's first thought after that was that he would hide? He would hide. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God on the trees of the garden. I mean, it's almost laughable, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Trying to hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing, omniscient God behind the tree. It's ridiculous. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Keeping watch on the evil and the good, Proverbs 15 says. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He will shift the forces. Think about it. God sees you. God knows you. You. But David's vision of God didn't stop there. If you look at verses 7 through 12, you can write beside those verses Another two words. Verses 1 through 6, God sees. Verses 7 through 12, God surrounds. God surrounds. Where can we escape God? Where can we go? 
to escape him. According to what David said here, God fills the vertical plane. In other words, all, all is the distance between heaven and hell, heaven and the grave, verse number 8. He's there in all of that. He fills it. It's a truth that Adam quickly discovered when he tried hiding from him. There's no place to go. One commentator said, it's one thing to recognize there's no escape from God's all-seeing, all-knowing scrutiny and knowledge. Yet how much more awesome to recognize we cannot escape his continual presence. He is here. He's all around us. Another wrote, we cannot go from him, no matter how we plan a plot or escape. The slyest sneaking away is fruitless, for there's no place to go. We cannot flee, for the widest, wildest, most desperate flight will find only God everywhere. Spurgeon said, we must be, whether we will it or not, as near to God as our soul is to our body. Neither by patient travel or by hasty flight can we withdraw from the all-surrounding deity. His mind is in our mind, himself within ourselves. His spirit is over our spirit. Our presence is ever in his presence. He's ever. He not only fills that vertical plane, he also fills the horizontal plane. David noticed that in verse number 9. He used the phrase, wings of the morning, that describes the east. The east where the sun rises in the morning. He used the phrase, the uttermost parts of the sea, that references the Mediterranean Sea, which from his perspective would have been to the west. And so he was saying, no matter how far east you go, you can't get away from God's presence. No matter how far west you go, you can't get away from God's presence. Jonah thought he could get away from God. He thought he could run far enough. God told him to get up and go and preach to them. None of was over here. John didn't want to do that. And so as the Bible says that he booked a flight, or booked not a flight, but a ship to Tarsus. Maybe it was a flight, I don't know. Tarsus was over here. And he tried to run just as far as he could in the opposite direction. But he soon learned he can't run far. Jonah learned, just as David learned here, that what hides man from man can't hide man from God. That's verses 11 and 12. God sees in the light. And he sees in the dark. There's no place we can go to hide from him where he cannot see us and where he cannot discover. And where we won't discover, he's already there. Some translations, the ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, translate verse 12 as this. Even the darkness will, be, will not be dark to you. I like that. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The best night vision God was made. Pale in comparison to the way our God is. Find the darkest hiding place you think you can find. And you'll find that God is there. Right there. The poet wrote darkness and light and disagree. Great God, they're both alike to thee. Thine hand can pierce thy foes as soon through midnight shades as blazing noon. He surrounds. And so I ask you, what is this vision of God's omnipresence? And that's another big word. Another big theological word, but it just simply means God surrounds. His presence is everywhere. He's everywhere present at once. What does that vision do for you? How does that make you feel? To the same God, it bring great comfort, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it bring greatest comfort? When you want Him, when you need Him, every single time you call out to Him in prayer, He's there. He's always there. He's already there. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth, Psalm 145 says. To the lost, this ought to bring something else. It ought to bring fear. It ought to bring trouble. Because judgment is coming, and there is no place 
escape from him who is everywhere. Just as Adam found when God immediately saw him by a tree. Just as Jonah found when God knew exactly where he was as he tried to flee to Tarshish. When, when you try to hide, he will be there. God said through his prophet Amos, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So are you getting a vision of God yet? He's the God who sees. He's the God who surrounds. But then there's something else. Next to verses 13 through 18, if you'd like, you could write the words God superintends. He superintends. <coughs> we are right now in our world in the midst of a terrible debate, especially in this country, regarding the matter of abortion. This issue came up recently in one of our Bible talks with the elders. We have these things in the last Wednesday of every uh, of every month during our normal prayer meeting time on Wednesday nights, and we just uh, we have questions and answers. Uh, people submit questions and the elders and I try to answer. Well, abortion came up here recently. Abortion is just simply an evil word that refers to the murder of an unborn infant in the womb of his or her mother. That's what it means. And Satan has done an astonishingly good job of reframing the debate in the minds of most such that they think the mother is at the center of the abortion issue. Think of the language that's used to justify abortion in the world today. Think of the signs that you've seen people carrying. I'm free to do what I want with my body. Get your hands off my body. But when we get it straight in our minds that the baby is at the center of the debate, that the victim is the baby and not the mother. The body we're talking about is not the mother's, but the baby's. Well, then the evil of abortion becomes pretty predictable. That's why there's been so much effort to define the baby as merely a clump of tissue, not a viable, living human being. That's why there's so much hand-wringing and discussion around the question of when does life begin? Because if life doesn't begin until the child bursts forth from the womb and takes his first breath, well then, I don't know, there's no real moral dilemma, is there? About throwing it away. It's lifeless tissue. But what if life begins at conception? Or what if it begins before? Under what circumstances is it right and acceptable then to terminate that? And of course, we all know the answer. We all know the answer. The answer is never. Under no circumstances. God's commandment is clear. It can't be any more clear. You shall not murder. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 13. We can't escape the clarity of that commandment, and we dare not water it down and introduce our own exceptions to it. You shall not murder. God has reserved the right to take life and give life. He's reserved that right to himself, only to himself. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Now see that I, even I, he, and there is no God beside me, I feel, and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And of course, you know, one of the things preachers have the, the interesting privilege of witnessing is the looks on people's faces when you're talking about something like this. And sometimes you can almost divine the thoughts that people are thinking. 
okay, preacher, but what about all those exceptions? What about incest? What about rape? Shouldn't abortion be okay when such horrible crimes have been committed against a woman? And of course, merely asking the question reveals Satan has done his work well. He has convinced us that the mother is the issue. And when something terrible happens to her, she can then do something terrible to her child. And he has convinced you that the child is not really a child, but rather a lifeless hunk of tissue that can simply be discarded. But there is no crime. There is no crime that can be committed against another person that justifies that person murdering somebody else. None. Anywhere. None. Now, let's not confuse the issue, which is easy to do, by bringing in matters of self-defense and things like that. Uh, that's not murder. The commandment specifically says murder. Thou shalt not murder. And so, if we accept the clear biblical teaching that life begins in conception, or even before, if, if we accept the clarity of the commandment, thou shalt not murder, we have nowhere else to go on this issue. Except to recognize abortion is always a violation of God's commandment. And we have to be honest with ourselves. So many times people are just not honest about this. We need to recognize cases of rape and incest are not very often the reasons for abortions. Abortion is almost entirely, the vast majority of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, is performed as a means of after the fact birth control. We need to be honest. And I imagine you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Preacher, how in the world did you get so far from Psalm 139? What in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I think it has a lot to do. In verses 13 through 18, I think David makes the case for life beginning at conception or even before conception better than any place else you're going to find in life. Notice some of the things he said there in those verses. He said, God superintended your creation. You form my inward parts, verse number 13. God created and formed your most important parts, your very heart, that which makes you you. He formed, he made. The NIV translates that verse, I, uh, you created my inmost being. Verse number 13 says, you covered me in my mother's womb. God was superintending your life even before you were born. Before you were yet in your mother's womb. David was amazed at the marvel of his anatomy, verse 14, at the understanding that God had made him. Of course, that's another thing that causes people to be confused about this issue because they've also bought into another lie that we evolved, that we were not created, that we're not God's workmanship. But we are. David understood it. God's workmanship in making him was fearful and wonderful and marvelous. God saw that every molecule before conception took place, or saw every molecule. Verses 15 and 16, this is where I, I, I think this is a compelling argument here that in God's mind, life began even before conception. Notice verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I think in God's mind, conception began, or life began even before physical conception. The NIV makes it clear. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to me. In the New Living Translation, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I, I, 
seed before you were forth from your mother's womb. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before you were born. Well, let me make a couple of important statements from that. First, let me say this. Nobody ought to be more concerned for the needs of a woman who has had a crime perpetrated against her than we Christians. Nobody should care more for someone who's undergone such a trauma. We ought to be there in every way possible. We ought to go above and beyond to help and comfort and meet their needs. We ought to protect them, provide for them during the time of their pregnancy in every way. After that baby is born, if the mother is unable to care for it, adoption ought to be a viable and real option. I just I want to make it clear that when I say that the center of the issue is the baby and not the mother, I am not in any way saying that we don't care about the needs of the mother. And that we don't do everything we can to help and provide for and comfort the mother. We must do that. That's key. To say that the one thing is not to say that. We're not saying we don't care about the mother. Second, let's get off of that. And let me know that David's words here go far beyond that issue. I think they really speak to that issue, and I, I, couldn't, have, I couldn't avoid it when I came to that passage of Scripture. It was so clear I had to talk about it. But the fact is, God superintends your life in every way. It goes far beyond that. He superintends everything about your life. He, 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 where God sees referred to his omniscience, and God surrounds referred to his omnipresence. God superintends refers to his omnipotence. In fact, he can do anything. That he is all-powerful. That he is the giver of and superintendent of all life. That means, think about this, that means there is nothing that will happen to you today. Or anything in which he's not only aware, but in control. It means that whatever you go through, he has allowed it in your life for his good reasons. It means that he is ordering your life, allowing your life to unfold the way he knows is best for you. Notice David's words in verse 16. In your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet they were not. And God is in control. He's in control of this world. He's in control of history. He's in control of the future. He's in control of eternity. And he's in control of your life. Every day. Every event. And so I ask him once again. What is this vision of God? This time of his omnipotence. That he superintends, that he created all, superintends all, that he's in control of everything in your life. What does that do for you? How's that mean? In David's case, it basically made him say, this is the fourth thing. You could write this beside verses 19 through 24 if you want. In David's case, it made him say, I submit. I submit. And I have to confess that verses 19 through 24, I find the hardest verses in this, in this psalm to get my brain around. Uh, there, there's some things here that he wrote that I, I'm sure sure confuse us all. But I think the gist of what David was saying in those, in those few verses was that in light of God's all-seeing, all-surrounding, and all-superintending presence in his life, he recognized the need to submit to and surrender to God in every way. He needed to consider God's enemies his enemies. He needed to submit his heart to God for examination, to ensure his thoughts were God's thoughts, his desires were God's desires, his way was God's. I submit. 
So I think this is a good outline of this psalm. Number one, God sees, God surrounds, God superintends. I see. Now think about it. God sees all. And everything about you is open to his scrutiny. The only reasonable action for you is to recognize it and agree with him in it. If there's sin, then we need to confess it. He already knows about it and sees it anyway. If there's hurt, we need to talk to him about it. He sees it. So why not take it to him? Talk to him about it. Ask for help. If there's confusion or lack of faith or any other thing that hinders your relationship with God, he already sees. He already knows. Seek his help with it and talk openly with him about it. The only reasonable solution if God sees all is to surrender. If God surrounds all and everything you do and say and every place you go is a place where he is, well, the only reasonable action for you is to recognize that and be careful about where you go and what you do. There's a couple of wonderful ways that the Bible gives us to help us deal with temptation and sin in our life. One is the example of our Lord. Some of you wear the little bracelet that says WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's, that's a good tool. It's a good tool to help us when we're tempted. What would Jesus do at this point? Another tool is, is the promise that God gives us about these very things. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way to escape that you may be able to bear it. There's that promise that we can indeed have victory over these things. But there's this third tool. And I think the third tool is what's mentioned here in this passage. The simple understanding that wherever we go, and whatever we do, God is there. I don't know about you, but that clarifies my thinking sometimes. God is there. He surrounds us. And it's a powerful deterrent sometimes when we're tempted to do something we ought not to Use something on our computer we ought not, or break one of the commandments, or go where no Christian ought to go. We remember he will be right there with us. And he gives us faults. So the only reasonable solution, if God truly surrounds us in every place and in every way, is to submit. And finally, if God superintends us, then we can trust him. No matter what comes our way. If we've been victimized, or we're hurt, or if we fall, or if circumstances overwhelm, or sickness comes, or finances fail, whatever, we can trust Him, knowing that He superintends all in our lives and is working things out just as He This vision of God helps me. I hope it helps you. I hope it makes you want to draw closer. To our all seeing, all surrounding, all superintending God, because that's what He did for David. And I hope it also makes you want to search your soul and help you serve Him better every day. I hope it makes you want to submit to Him and His care. Because you can always, always trust Him. That's how it made David to you. Notice again his last two, two verses there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any wicked. 